The parables of Jesus, more than any other, this lesson is about the veil and about how your heart is fat. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. Once again, it is my great privilege to be teaching this week's Sunday School lesson. Our question or comment, I suppose I should say, this week comes again from Jill. Uh, She and I have continued our email correspondence from last week, and uh, she wrote back, as you remember, we talked about the fact that Satan appeals not only to our fear, but to our pride. And she wrote to sort of piggyback off the thought that Satan appeals to our pride sometimes. I was reminded of one of my favorite poems which begins, it's called Our Deepest Fear by Marianne Williamson. And you probably have seen this poem uh, attributed to Nelson Mandela, but actually it's by Marianne Williamson. It begins, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. So those are the first two stanzas of that poem. I recommend Our Deepest Fear. Thank you for that, Jill. If you'd like to have your question featured on the program, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. You can also contact us uh, through inboxing our Facebook page. And uh, I check that a little less frequently, but still regularly. Uh, And please remember to give us your five-star reviews on iTunes and Facebook. They help us to find new listeners and share us with your friends. Okay, this, this week's lesson number 12, Matthew 13, Luke 8 and 13, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And this is a lesson about the parables of Jesus. So in this lesson, Jesus goes from one parable to the next. And once again, I highly recommend a book that is very helpful for especially this kind of lesson, which is called Horizontal Harmony of the Four Gospels in Parallel Columns. I know that's a mouthful, but it's actually written by a friend of mine. I I saw this book years ago, um, and when I met uh, Brother Tom Mumford, who's who's in my ward, I had no idea he was the author, but uh, then he stood up a few weeks ago in Sunday school, and he recommended it. He said, look, I don't make much money off this book, so I'm not recommending it for that reason, but it does really help to study the Gospels to see especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke arranged vertically next to each other. And so today, if you want to read all these, uh, if you want to read all of the different accounts of the same parable, you can do that right next to each other. Once again, horizontal harmony of the four Gospels in parallel columns. He Brother Mumford, if you're listening, you maybe could have come up with a shorter title, but we love your book. So, first thing Jesus says, we'll start in Matthew chapter 13, but I'll be jumping around. So, if you have, uh, this is the way I study my scriptures. I have the Gospel Library app open, and I open up a tab for each chapter we're studying. So, we'll be switching back, back and forth, Matthew 13, Luke 8, Luke 13. We'll begin in Matthew 13. So what, what Jesus begins with is the parable of the sower. And uh, so I'll, I'll go over that briefly. But right at the start, I would like to recommend a conference, general conference talk to you. Um, President Oaks taught an entire, gave an entire conference address on this very parable just a few years ago, about four years ago, um, in April 2015. 
and it's called the parable of the sower. So I recommend that. So what is the parable? The parable is that uh, a man went out to, or a sower went out to sow seeds. And there are four different ways that he tried to sow these seeds. Some of the seeds fell on the wayside, which you can, we can assume is the tamped down earth next to the path, hard earth. And birds came down and ate the seed. Nothing happened with it. And then it fell on rocky ground, and, it, and the rocky ground seeds sprung up quickly, but then withered in the sun. And then some seeds fell on thorny ground, which was going to grow great, except for the thorns choked it, as, it, as it's called. Uh, but we all know how weeds can crowd out the plants that you actually want. So these, these plants didn't get a chance to grow. And then there was some, there was some seed that fell on good ground. Um, and what President Oaks does is he says, look, let's ignore the, the seeds that fell on the wayside. Those aren't the people who are listening to this. Let's talk about, and, and uh, President Oaks says, this might as well be called the, the parable of the soil because it's really about what kind of soil are we going to be. So as, as far as the three types of soil where the seed actually got a chance to grow, what happens when the soil grows on uh rocky ground, it's stony ground. It means that there's no room for roots to be put down. And what happens when, when seeds grow in thorny soil, then, uh, then the cares of the world and the pleasures of the world are what choke it out. And anyway, he, he gives various recommendations on how to avoid being those two types of soil, how to be the good ground. So I recommend that talk to you. So obviously the good ground is the type of people who hear the word of the Lord and listen to it, that word, and follow the, the promptings of the Spirit. We'll talk a little bit about the interpretation of this parable in a few minutes, but first let's talk about what, what the disciples' reaction was. So they came to Jesus and they said, why are you speaking this way? And Jesus, this is one of the few times when not only does Jesus quote Isaiah, which happens um, not infrequently, but he actually says, here's a quote from Isaiah. He says, you know, that I, what I want to do is to fulfill the words of Isaiah who said, and, and this goes back to Isaiah's throne theophany in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called in front of the throne of God, and the, the very calling, the entire calling of Isaiah is to go to the people and make their heart fat, as it says in the King James Version. Now, uh, we discussed, if you listen to this, the, uh, our episode on this part of Isaiah. This is a particular type of Hebrew stem for the word to make fat, which is um, a declarative stem. So what that means is that Isaiah isn't actually called upon to make the heart of the people fat. He's called upon to declare that the heart of the people is made fat. And that's made clear. Jesus is almost reading, it probably in the original Greek, the fact that it's gone through so many translations to reach us um, is the only reason why this the words don't match exactly the words of Isaiah. My guess is Jesus was quoting directly from Isaiah chapter six, and he's so and and the way we can know that Isaiah was commanded to declare that the heart of the people was made fat is if we're back in Matthew thirteen, verse fifteen. This people's heart is waxed gross. Same meaning there, but just slightly different words. This people's heart is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. 
and to read the comparable verse in Isaiah chapter 6, make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. So obviously slight differences in verbiage, but but Jesus is obviously quoting from Isaiah and saying, um, when, 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 a, when a heart is made gross, what that means is, this is, if you look at different translations, and once again, I'll point you to biblehub.com, we'll go, we'll, I'll point you there a couple of times during this lesson. But if you pull up uh, Matthew chapter, or Isaiah chapter 6, and then you read that verse on there, you'll see that um, some translations render that as calloused or insensitive or dull. And so what it means is a heart that is past feeling. And I think in the New Testament, we get that sense when Jesus says, the heart of this people is waxed gross. In other words, it's expanded to the point it's so puffed up that it's not sensitive anymore to the small promptings that come. Something really has to hit it, and it has to probably be um, a loud voice rather than a still small voice in order to get someone's attention. So we're going to go pretty quickly into another parable, and there are a couple of parables in this lesson that talk about hell. So the next parable we're going to discuss, we'll come back to a little bit about um, this, par- this parallel between Isaiah and Matthew in just a moment. But first, the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is a parable that it appears only in Matthew, and um, it's also one of the only parables that has an interpretation, that Jesus specifically gives an interpretation. And it, it may surprise you to learn that it's actually, this is actually a controversial passage, meaning there are scholars that think Matthew inserted this later or somebody after Matthew inserted this interpretation later according to their own eschatological views, their views of the end of the world, and they wanted to turn this parable into uh, a view about a millennial reign of Jesus, um, or at least emphasize that aspect of the parable. Now, this parable is very much um, a, a parable about the entire plan of salvation. So in case you've never heard it, uh, a righteous man, a, a, a farm owner, goes out and sows good seed in his field, but then at night an enemy comes and puts tares in the field. He sows wheat, and the enemy sows tares. And you may have heard this many times, but I'm going to say it again. So t- what is a tear? Um, it's not a... It's not a word that we learned growing up, and so as a kid, usually is when we're first exposed to the the parable of the wheat and the tares, and you kind of wonder what is what is a tear? People tell you it's a wheat or a weed, and there are there are uh, a lot of theories about what particular kind of wheat it or weed it could be. But I, the most convincing to me, my personal opinion is a tear is what is called false wheat, and the word in English today would be a darnell weed. So what does that mean? False wheat, what does it look like? The, the darnel weed is in, almost indistinguishable from wheat in its early stages of growth. And so if, if somebody, it would really be quite a practical joke to, to go into somebody's wheat field and plant tares at the same time because then they're growing up, they're about the same size, and you wouldn't have any way of telling them apart. And the, the way you tell them apart is when they're fully grown, then the Darnell weed's ears are black, and the wheat's ears are lighter brown. And as, as Jesus has said, you know, the field is white. So in comparison to the, to the weed, the, the ear of the wheat 
makes the field look white and ready to harvest. So that's what an enemy did in this field of wheat. Of wheat, he, he sowed tares, and the servants, so there, now there are more characters in the parable. The servants go to the master of the, of the vineyard and say, or the farm and say, there's tares among this wheat. What should we do? We've got to get rid of these tares. And the, the master says, don't pull up the tares right now because you'll pull up the wheat as well, but let them all grow. And then when it when it's harvest time, the reapers will go out and they'll separate the wheat from the tares. They'll gather everything and they'll put the tares, the, the wheat will find its way into the barn and the tares will be burned. And anyway, we'll talk about, uh, later on, we'll talk about the interpretation of this parable. But one of the, one of the meanings is that these tares are burned. They, the, and it's kind of obvious that the wheat are some people and the tares are other people. And the burning symbolizes going to hell. And there's another parable um, a little bit later on about fish being the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man, a fisherman who puts his net out. And then uh, when he, when it's full of fish, he takes it back to the beach and he pulls every, throws everything out on the beach and he sorts the good fish out. And, and then the bad fish are thrown in the fire. And so right away we have two representations of hell, of heaven and hell in the parable and it's kind of harsh. Sometimes people who have a who believe that God is a vengeful God and they don't quite understand why did God act the way he did? Why did he make the commandments he did? Isn't God inconsistent? Look at this. God wants us to suffer. Um, and in the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus says, you know, they'll be sent to hell. They're in everlasting burning. There's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So before we go any further, I want to address this idea of what hell is like. And um, I want to draw attention to the fact that hell is also called, in the scriptures, outer darkness in the Bible. And the, the point is that it's either fire. If, it, if this were a literal description of what hell is like, it would either be fire or outer darkness. It wouldn't be both. These are both different metaphors used to describe a similar reality which is the reality as it's described in the Book of Mormon, when we're brought to, to stand before the great judgment bar of God and have a bright recollection of all our guilt, then, as Alma says, then that is the time when we would wish for all of the mountains to fall upon us and cover us if we, if we could only avoid standing in that presence, but we're forced to stand there and, and recognize that all God's judgments are just. So why would you burn... A bunch of weeds. Why would a farmer burn weeds? Is it to punish the plants that grew up in his field and took nutrients away from his good crop? Or is it just because you don't want the weed around or you don't want the, the weeds around? You don't want these tares, you don't want the seeds getting back into your field and there's really no purpose for tares. They don't do anyone any good. And so the, the thing you do with tares is you burn them. It's, it symbolizes not a punishment of the tares. What it symbolizes is the fact that the tares were a waste of the resources, the, a waste of the potential of the ground. Same thing with the fish. We're not punishing the fish, and they didn't have a conservationist movement uh, during Jesus' time. So to them, there was, no, there was no desire to catch and release. They caught a bunch of fish, 
And if the fish were no good, they would burn them. It just meant that it was a waste of their effort as fishermen to catch those fish. They weren't any good to be eaten. And the point, so the point of these verses, as we talk about hell in these parables, the point of the verses is not to show how much God wants to punish you for the things that you do wrong, but the the terrible fate that awaits those people who waste their potential, because this is what hell is, is that it's a an everlasting awareness of just how much potential you actually wasted. And we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, what it means to have a bright recollection, right? The the we come on Earth, and before we came to Earth, I don't believe we had the ability to forget. Forgetting would have been a foreign concept to us. It's the veil that allows us not only to forget the things we knew before this life, but to forget things from one day to the next, especially one year or one decade to the next. Forgetting is a, an artifact of the veil. And so when the veil is stripped away, that's where we have a bright recollection. We have an everlasting rec- recollection of everything. Um, and I, I also, this is a personal belief, but I also think we'll have the capability of focusing our attention on more than one thing at one time. Uh, that, I believe, is an aspect of God's mind. Well, there's no question it's an aspect of God's mind. Uh, and I believe that it will be an aspect of our mind and may, per- may possibly have been already before we came to this earth. And so, therefore, part of our brains will always be thinking about everything that we gave up if we happen to be in this unhappy state of the people who've wasted their potential. And so when Jesus says there'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, he's not saying, oh, oh good, these people who end up in hell, look how much they're going to suffer. What he's saying is, I love you all so much that while you're still in the state where you can influence where you go, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure to point out to you how painful it is to end up somewhere other than what you, where you want to be. I don't want you to be in this state. It's going to be a terrible state where there's weeping. People are going to be genuinely heartbroken forever because they wasted the the greatest gift that they've been given, which is the gift of agency. So let's go back to the disciples' question. They asked Jesus, why are you teaching them in parables? And parables fall into a broader category of what I like to call mysteries. Uh, And this just brought up for me pointed me right to the 89th section of the, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, which is known as the Word of Wisdom. And one of the chief blessings of the Word of Wisdom is if you follow the, these words, you will, you will uncover hidden treasures of knowledge. And you'll see the theme of treasure come up in a couple of these parables later on. But the, the idea of hidden treasures of knowledge is also closely related to a mystery, to a parable. So, I don't know, maybe, um, obviously there are people who discover hidden treasures in the scriptures uh, that, don't, that don't follow the word of wisdom, and there are people who do follow the word of wisdom who don't uncover hidden treasures of knowledge in the scriptures. So, the fact that it's a promised blessing for me has definitely helped because I have seen, as I've studied this lesson, some hidden treasures come to light. Uh, and I believe that God does fulfill that blessing for me. But it's not the only way he can fulfill the blessing. And it's not guaranteed that he'll, he'll fulfill the blessing just by obeying the word of wisdom 
we have to also seek out and study and employ the and and ask and and pray and employ the Holy Spirit in the process. But I do believe that there is something to this that the the idea that the the more faithfully we follow the word of wisdom, the more hidden treasures we'll find in the scriptures. And as Jesus says a little bit later, um, the kingdom itself is likened to these treasures. So finding a treasure is more than just uncovering a new idea in the scriptures. The scriptures themselves are a treasure. And anyway, we'll talk about that as we, as we go into those parables. So what does it mean to, for your heart to be fat as regards a parable? Um, Jesus, so that's what, that's Jesus's reply. Why are you teaching in a parable? And Jesus says, they're going to, their heart is insensitive. It can't be, be touched by the still small voice. And therefore they have eyes, but they won't see. They're not going to understand this. And could it be true that Jesus really doesn't want someone to understand? So to answer this question, I want us all to try a little mental activity, and that is close your eyes if you're not driving or running, and uh, imagine yourself hearing the parable of the sower for the first time. So Jesus gave the interpretation of this parable later on to his disciples, but imagine that you're just one of the multitude and you don't get that private interpretation. All you get is a story about somebody throwing seeds in a few different types of soil. Now, these are Jews, in many cases, observant Jews, but at least they probably had some sort of religious upbringing, and so they're very familiar with interpreting a metaphor. Now, this metaphor isn't 100% clear, so what are the possible interpretations you might come up with? Obviously, you're going to look at this, and you're going to think, okay, this is a story, somehow it's about me. The most obvious thing to think is, I'm the sower, all right? What am, I, what am I doing? I'm going throughout life. I'm throwing my seeds in different places. Okay, these seeds are my actions. They're my choices. Um, yeah, you're right. So I don't want to throw my seeds in the, in the wayside. I don't want to throw them in the stony ground. I don't want to throw them in thorny ground. And you might try to discover what each of those types of ground means as far as your actions go, your day-to-day choices. And you might think, okay, I want to I make good choices every day and throw my seeds in good ground. And that's sort of a level one understanding. One level up from that would be, all right, I'm the seed, right? And I can be sown. Wow, God, God can really do a number on me. Either he's going to throw me into good ground or he's going to throw me into rotten ground. And if he throws me into good ground, maybe I'll bear 30-fold increase of fruit, but maybe 100-fold. Just depends on God, I guess, you know, whatever God wants from me. And so that's sort of a level two understanding, and it's really meaning that all this is left up to God. My choice is made for me. And then, obviously, the interpretation that Jesus gave the disciples is, you're the soil, and the soil doesn't really, uh, doesn't really do anything in the story. And so a third level interpretation of this, let's say you were in the multitude and you got this far and you thought, I'm the soil. And uh, then you thought, well, I, I don't really get to choose what kind of soil I am. I'm just sitting here and either somebody comes and, and sows seed where I'm sitting or they don't. And if, if they do, then I get to either bear fruit or I don't. And once again, there's no choice involved. And so when Jesus gives the, the interpretation of the parable, it's also understood that there's some sort of choice in what kind of soil we're going to be, which is a choice that soil doesn't have. I mean, no metaphor, no, no allegory is perfect, right? They all break down at some point. So this one breaks down. 
around the idea that we get to choose what kind of soil we are. We get to choose how prepared our soil is, whether there are rocks there, whether there are thorns there. And when, if we even, even though we're already one type of soil, even though the thorns are already starting to choke the seed, we can actually change what type of soil we are and get rid of those thorns and get rid of the, of the rocks underground so that the fruit we're bearing can have, can have uh, or the, the plants that we're bearing can have more fruit. That's an interesting uh, level to the interpretation that somebody wouldn't get unless they were willing to be humble. So the whole point of this is that uh, there, were, there were plenty of people in the multitude, no doubt, who could have understood at various levels Jesus's parable. And there were some of them who came to the right conclusion because they were willing to be humble and say, you know what, I really can change my life. What Jesus is asking me to do is to change. And those are the people who, whose heart wasn't fat, who were willing to take a look at themselves and actually be humble and recognize, I see, because of just a simple word from one person, I see a need to change something fundamental about the way I act in the world. And that's the opposite of somebody with a, with a heart that is waxed gross, as Jesus called it. Let's talk a little bit about, this is an opportunity now, in, uh, in Luke chapter 18, this parable of the sower is also recounted. And in this, Jesus says, the, the fruit now ripens to perfection. And this word perfection in Greek is telos. You have the, the perfection, as, as Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 5, be ye therefore perfect, even as, I, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Right? And this is such an intimidating verse for so many people. And a big part of it is, number one, we don't understand the Greek, but the, the Greek is just a translation of the Hebrew underneath. So telos in Greek is a, is a word for per- perfection, but it, it really means where it's applied to plants in this verse gives us a lot of clues about what Jesus might have meant earlier. When it's applied to plants, it means they're ripe. And so that, that gives you an indication of what kind of perfection this word is describing. The, the word telos also means purpose. And so the idea that's conveyed when something has reached a state of telos is that it's, it's attained its purpose. It's come to the end that it was always designed to come to. So it doesn't mean that for, I mean, whenever we think of something that's perfect, there's really only one way to be perfect. If there's any slight thing that could be changed about it for the better, then it's not perfect. And so there's only one perfect kind of seed that could come from any plant. And so all these plants, they cannot all reach the perfection of ripeness, right? If if perfect meant to Jesus what it means to us. Instead, what it means is they all grow up and instead of just being grass, they actually, uh, uh, there's a, an ear of wheat that appears and then you can pick the seeds and it's ripe. And so that's what Jesus meant when he said, be therefore perfect. He didn't mean that you have to be obeying every commandment in every thought and word, indeed, every second of every day and, until before you can consider yourselves obedient at all. What he meant was, you have to take it in context. What he meant was, you've all grown up thinking that the the law of Moses just was talking about your outward behavior. And I've just given you all the ways in which the law can actually change your heart. So be perfect. So be perfect in that way. Grow up, become ripe in that way and attain the purpose you were created for, which is to also pay attention to what's going on inside. 
And that's really the whole message there. It wasn't be perfect in, in the sense that there's no, there's no improvement that you could possibly make, but be perfect in the sense that you are not ignoring any part of your development. And, that, and that's illuminated by this verse here in Luke chapter 8. This, this, this fruit comes to perfection. Now, what did John the Baptist say when people came to him to be baptized? He says, bring forth fruit, meet for repentance. The fruit was in, in much the way that we use that word in English. It doesn't always mean the, the produce of a plant. It also means the, the actions or the results of your actions. Bring forth results that are worthy of repentance. Show that you're repenting by actually changing, is what John was saying. And so I've always taken this before, I mean, just sort of unconsciously, I've taken this verse to mean that the people who were, the good, the, the plants that were sown on good soil, the people, people who represented this good soil would be powerful missionaries and they would convert 30 or 60 or 100 people each. And now I, as I've been thinking about it this week, I recognize what Jesus is saying is, let's say somebody smiles at you when you go to the store, then if you are perfect, if you bear perfect fruit, what it means is that you're going to smile now to 30 people after that. If somebody prays for you, you're going to pray for 30 more people. And you may never know that they prayed for you in the first place, but you, or you might pray for 100 people. If somebody does service for you once, you might do service for 30 or 60 or 100. That's what it means to be the good ground, right? It, it's not that you have created this many converts, although it could very, very well mean just that. But it doesn't mean only that. It means that you bear fruit, you multiply. All of the blessings you receive, you multiply them to others. That's what it means to be perfectly uh, this fruit that is ripened to perfection. It attains its end when it multiplies. A single seed, if a farmer put one seed in the ground and it came up and bore one seed at the end of the season, then a farmer would quickly run out of seed. It's because it multiplies that he plants it. And that's really the whole point here is when seed ripens to perfection, it's multiplied. And the fruit being multiplied means the good actions of others around us and of God towards us. All the blessings are multiplied by us. And in that way, we are perfect when we are the good ground. So that's the meaning, in my opinion, some of the meanings of the parable of the sower. Now, Jesus says, when he, when he explains why he's speaking in parables to the disciples, he says to them, I, I want them to only be able to understand these things if they're willing to be humble, right? And that's my interpretation. And here we are in Luke chapter 8, which is the, the sower is brought forth in Luke chapter 8. And then Jesus gives the interpretation, and then, he, and then he talks a little bit about things being kept secret and things being brought to light. So here we are in verse 16. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, cover it, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear, for whosoever hath to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. This is a, an enlightenment, this is a clarification of a verse in Matthew, similar verse, where it says, whoever has will, 
will be given more, and whoever doesn't have will be taken away even that which he has. And Jesus was a master of this sort of shocking discourse, which means that he told you the opposite of what you expected to hear. And news in, in the news world today, this is called the story of man bites dog, right? The, the common story would be uh, no reporter would go out on a story where a dog bit a man. That's what you expect to read. And so they call it a man bites dog story when it's flipped on its head. It's the exact opposite of what you expect. And then every reporter in town would rush to cover that story because people want to read about man bites dog. They don't want to read about dog bites man. So here Jesus is saying, not what you would expect to hear. If you have, it'll be taken away. And if you have not, it'll be given to you, right? That would be fair. That would be evening things out. Jesus says the opposite. If you have, you'll receive more. And if you don't have, it'll be taken away. And then Luke clarifies that. You actually, if you don't have, then it'll be taken away even what you thought you did have, but you you really didn't have anything. And so then it will be made clear that you weren't in possession of anything. Now, what is Jesus talking about? What will be taken away? What will be given to you? The idea is that truths are being communicated through parables, important truths, Eternal truths are being communicated through parables. And if you have truth, meaning you are willing, he said, take care, therefore, how you hear. It's so important that you're humble enough when the word of God arrives to you, when truth comes to your doorstep, it's so important to be humble enough to hear it. Because if you have some truth, you can receive more. But if you think you have truth and actually don't have any, then you'll lose even that which you thought you had. One day it'll be clear that you you didn't you weren't willing to receive truth because your heart was fat. And Jesus is talking about the importance of humility to the disciples. Nothing is secret that shall not be made known. Now Jesus then uh, then gets in a boat. This is an interesting chapter if you keep reading in Luke chapter 8. We didn't talk about we've had a We've had another lesson where in both Matthew and Mark it talked about the story of the what are called the Gadarene swine. And we skipped over it in that lesson. And I'm glad we did because now here's the chance in Luke to talk about it. And it's fascinating that it's put together with this. So Luke sails across the Sea of Galilee and they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes. And this is called different names. It's actually sort of a sort of a question about where exactly this took place because it's called uh, Gergasa or Gadara or, Gera- or Gerasa which is modern-day Jerash in the country of Jordan. And there is really, I mean, the, the events of the story depict a steep hill next to a large body of water. And only really one of those three descript- or places matches, has a nearby place that matches that description, which in my opinion is the ancient city of the Decapolis, the ancient Roman city of Hippos, which is at the top of a bluff overlooking the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, but it's not known exactly where this happened, especially because it has three different names. Never, in any case, Jesus arrives there, and there's a man, uh, you, you may know the story, there's a man there who's possessed of many devils, and when Jesus casts out the devils, they run into the swine, and the swine run into the water. Then the people come out of, out of the city nearby, and they're like, man, all 2,000 of our swine are dead, and uh, these are Romans, they're not Jews, right? These are probably, at least, and in any case, there were people willing to eat swine, which is not a Jewish food, <laughs> to say the least. 
and they say to Jesus, we don't want you around. You're a troublemaker. Obviously, you know, there's all kinds of chaos ever since you arrived. Would you please leave? But the man who's been healed, he says to Jesus, please, can I come with you? I mean, you've changed my life. I want to be with you forever. And Jesus says, what I would like you to do is to stay here and make it known what happened to you. Go tell everyone the great things that God has done for you. And what Luke said is that he goes back home and he tells everyone the great thing that Jesus has done for him. You can see Luke conflating God and Jesus. And that's very, very much a deliberate uh, choice on Luke's part. So Jesus does leave. They get back in their boat. They sail back to the west bank of the, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we, we discussed this story. This is where Jesus is approached by Jairus, whose daughter is dying. When they get to Jairus' home, he makes everyone stay outside. And he and Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother, they go inside, and he raises this young girl from the dead. And then he says, please don't tell anyone what happened. Now, isn't this fascinating? Earlier in the verse, Jesus says, there's not anything known which shall not be made hid. There's no, there, there's no secret knowledge, right? But then he goes to a country, and, and he also says, to those who have a lot, to them shall be given even more. To those who have not shall be taken away even, which they, even that which they thought they had. Then he goes to a Gentile place, and it's a, it's a very common thing. Where whenever Jesus performs a miracle, don't tell anyone. Jesus didn't want to attract the, the antipathy of the Jewish leaders. They, they would find that they commonly and almost always found some excuse to blame him for the ways or the timing or the place in which he performed his miracles. And so he, he not being ready yet to openly defy them, he wanted to just perform the miracle and perform that act of mercy without actually making a political statement because he wasn't quite ready for what that would bring down upon him. So he goes to the, this Gentile stronghold and he tells this man to publish the miracle. Why? Because as he says, the g- good works are made to be put on a candlestick. They're supposed to give light. It's not because you, you did the good work in order to get uh, the recognition of men, but if, if your motives are pure, then obviously it's, it's a wonderful thing for good works to be made public. So he goes to the, this country of the Gentiles and does a public good work. Then he goes to the Jews and he asks for an even a far greater miracle to be kept secret. And this fits right into Luke's description that to those who have will be given more. So obviously who fits that description in this story? It's the Gentiles. What do they have? They don't have more truth. They don't understand the gospel more than the Jews do. What do they have more of? Well, as we learn from the, what happens to this man, he goes home and many people listen to him. And, and the, the, the whole city is sort of astonished at the story he has to tell of how Jesus has healed him. What they have is humility. They have a willingness to hear. Their heart is not fat. And when Jesus returns to, uh, we don't know if it's Capernaum or the area just a little bit to the south of it, then um, he has to keep it secret. And from these Jews who have the, the most truth of any people on the earth at that time is taken away even that which they thought they had. So they thought they had an understanding of the gospel. They thought they had a closeness to God. 
but they don't get to hear about one of Jesus' greatest miracles, raising the daughter of Jairus from the dead, because their heart is fat, because Jesus isn't safe to publish the true depth of the miracles that he can work, because if he does, then he's in danger. The, the Jewish leaders themselves will come after him. And this, so I guess my point is the entire, this is not an accident that the entire chapter, the eighth chapter of Luke is itself a parable. There's a hidden meaning in this chapter showing us. It's an illustration. And if you think this is accidental, you think these guys are just throwing one episode after another in sort of a haphazard way. That's not the way they wrote the Gospels at all. They took decades to write these things down and to organize them very specifically and very deliberately. And so Luke has given us an object lesson of what it means, why we have parables, right? Some things have to be kept hidden, and here's why. And some things are revealed, as Jesus says, to the babes or to little children. So here is one of the miracles of Jesus being revealed to the Gentiles and a greater miracle being hidden from the Jews, even though Jesus said earlier in that same chapter that there's nothing uh, is secret that shall not be made manifest. And then he makes something secret. And so that should make you ask why. And now we see this entire chapter is one big long parable that Luke, this isn't a parable of Jesus. This is a parable of Luke. Luke is teaching us something about the parables of Jesus by organizing his teachings about parables into a parable itself. Very fascinating and very wonderful. Here's one of the hidden treasures we're talking about. This is what you can find if you approach the scriptures with prayer with, uh, with, and with humility. So there's more parables that, that Luke goes on to tell in, in chapter 13, the parable of the man with a barren fig tree. And uh, this, is a par- this is a fig tree that has never borne fruit, and the man has, comes out one day and he says, I've been, I've been waiting for this tree to bear fruit for three years now. Why, why am I going to let it cumber the ground? Why am I going to let it take up space in my garden and water it and do all this work for it? Why am I going to do this year after year? Let's get rid of it. And his gardener says, wait, let's try it one more year. Let's give it another year and I'm going to give it even more fertilizer and I'm going to do a better job pruning it. We're going to pay it a little extra attention and more care. And then at the end of that time, if it doesn't bear any fruit, then we can cut it out of here. So that we don't know what happens to it. That's the end of the parable. And I'm not going to give an interpretation even my... Jesus doesn't give any more interpretations. Um, and so everything from here on in is our speculation. But I'm not even going to give you a speculation yet on this parable. So today, um, I'm actually leaving this as sort of an Easter egg. Uh, and I've done this before in certain lessons in the past, but if you, if you have an idea of what this parable means, it's coming up in a few weeks. Uh, there's, a, there's a particular scripture that, scriptural story that, gives, that sheds some light on this. Um, then email, email the show, and if you get it right, then I will read your email uh, when that time comes. All right, mustard. So then the parable of the mustard seed. What is a mustard seed? The, the mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds but in the Middle East, it grows uh, to a height of maybe 10 feet or even more, and birds can definitely nest in the branches or uh, roost in the branches. And uh, it's depending on what exact species, obviously we don't know, but it's, it's generally assumed that it's a particular type of plant that grew very large from a very small seed. And so the, the idea of this, this parable seems clear. I mean, we, now we're left to do what we 
the exercise that we did in the parable of the sower, now we're left to do that for real. We have to guess at what Jesus meant. And, uh, and Joseph Smith actually shed light on this, that uh, something small, so small, can grow into something truly great. And he even made uh, reference to the fact that the, the mustard seed, the, the kingdom of God would fill the whole earth. So this, these parables actually uh, summon to mind the second chapter of Daniel, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, where the stone cut out of the mountain without hands rolls down, crushes the kingdoms of the world, and grows to fill, fill the whole earth. That's the idea of the mustard seed. And, and Joseph Smith said that angels might, would even lodge in the branches thereof. And uh, Joseph Smith, if you, if you were to go to Google and search, let's say Joseph Smith, uh, Matthew 13, he gave at the, in, it was either in Kirtland or Nauvoo, he gave a, uh, an inspired interpretation of many of these parables in Matthew 13. So that's obvious, one obvious meaning is that something so small grew so large. And that's similar, that's a similar meaning to the parable of the leaven, and leaven is just yeast, right? And so um, in older cultures, they didn't necessarily separate yeast into pure yeast like we have today. You couldn't go to the store and buy yeast. What they would often use is a little bit of already fermented dough. And once that dough had some living yeast in it, you had to keep it alive by constantly making bread every day. You had to keep reusing that yeast. And as we know, yeast is a fungus and it consumes part of the carbohydrate of the bread and, and secretes oxygen into the bread, which causes the bread to rise. It causes all this wonderful fibrous feeling, the softness of the bread. And if it weren't for that, we'd all be eating solid chunks of dough. And this is what uh, the Jews had to eat on Passover, which is unleavened bread, meaning bread that has not had an opportunity to rise. And the, the reason for that is, number one, it, it, during the time of Moses, the leaven sim- symbolized having to wait. And they, the, the fact that they ate unleavened bread meant that they were in such a hurry, they had to eat the bread standing up with their shoes on. Now, over time, leaven came because a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast would actually spread throughout. And what he says, he calls it three measures of meal. So... This huge amount of flour and, and dough can be can be leavened by just a small amount of yeast or a small amount of sour dough, because as they didn't understand the the means by which it would happen at the time. But because this organism spreads throughout the entire bit, no matter how much bread there is, you don't need a ton of wheat of of yeast. You can leaven the entire amount. So once again, we have the idea of the kingdom of God spreading spreading far beyond where it was ever imagined that it could go from such a little thing. Now here in Luke chapter 13, right after the parable of the leaven, somebody says to Jesus, um, are there few that, that are saved? How many people are actually saved? Like, what are my, basically, what are my chances, Jesus? What are the chances that I end up in the kingdom of God? A very natural question. I think we've all wondered this. Um, and in typical fashion, Jesus doesn't directly answer the question. What he says is, strive, and this is in uh, Luke 13, verse 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate, meaning the narrow gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. And then he talks about how when the master of the house is risen up, 
and has shut the door and everybody out starts to gather outside. So once once it becomes obvious that you've got to go in or now or never and the door is shut, then everybody wants in, but it's too late. And they all say, you know, please, Lord, open up to me. And then that's when the Lord of the house will say, I don't know where you came from. And you'll begin to say, look, I've I've been your friends. We've eaten together. Look, you've taught in our streets. And he'll say, I don't know where you came from. Go away, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be, once again, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And this language is deliberately evocative of the, the final 11 chapters of Isaiah are this huge chiasmus, which begins and ends with a promise that Jews won't be the only people to sit down in the final kingdom. In the last days in the new Jerusalem, the Gentiles will be included. So in, in Isaiah chapter 56, what, uh, what Isaiah says is, this is right at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 3, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them, and a eunuch is a person who obviously can't have any children, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that joins themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. So the strangers and the eunuchs, people who are typically outcasts in Jewish society, will be made, not, not only will they be given a place and a name, and that's... Um, in Hebrew, Yad Vashem is place in a name. It's the name of their Holocaust museum. It, it's saying that people who are thrust out will, will enjoy with God his rest. That's what this symbolizes, a place and a name. So they've given that phrase very high regard in, in modern Jewish society as well as ancient. And then in Isaiah 66, it finishes, the chapter finishes with this idea. Uh, they shall bring, in verse 20, they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters, upon mules, upon swift beasts, to my holy mountain Jerusalem. And holy mountain it means the temple. The, the temple in Jerusalem sits upon Mount Moriah, the temple mount right at the center of the old city today, but always it was this, this mountain. So the holy mountain means the temple. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel unto the house of the Lord. So all the people from around the world are going to bring an offering to Jerusalem, just as you Jews bring an offering to the temple. And in verse 21, God says, I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. So this, this lineage that has long been the only place God could get priests and Levites from, the, the tribe of Levi, will no longer in that day be the only place. He will take them even from among the Gentiles. So where am I going with this? If you remember when we talked about John chapter 1, what John said in verses 12 and 13 was, as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the, the point I made at the time was, 
there's this competing idea of lineage because all the Pharisees say, we're the seed of Abraham. And what Jesus has to say is, it doesn't matter whether you're the seed of Abraham because it's not whether you're born of the will of man. In other words, the, the idea that you have reproduced in the way that men have reproduced from the beginning of time and you've been born of blood and you've been born by the will of the flesh, that's not how you're going to be born when you become my seed. The, the, when you become, when you're born of God, you become the seed of the Savior. You become the seed of Yahweh. And you'll recall again in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, what it pres- when, when it talks about what happens to the suffering servant, and um, it pleased the Lord, in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So it's when Jesus finally has been perfected in, in what he has to perform, when he reaches his end, then he sees his seed. And that's when the seed of Abraham is finally contrasted with the seed of Christ. And as Isaiah said, it doesn't matter what your lineage is. The lineage of Abraham is important for a certain purpose. As, as God told the Jews in Exodus chapter 19, I've called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want you to show everyone what it's like to be a, a people that's ruled by God. But this special status doesn't last forever. And the, and the way we know this is here, right here in Luke chapter 13. So Luke says, at the end of this, talking about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, he says, in verse 30, Behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be the last. So here it is, spoken explicitly, saying, There are those of you who are the seed of Abraham, the first, who are actually going to be last in the kingdom of God. And there are those of you who are first, or there are those of you who are last, meaning the Gentiles, that are going to be the children of Christ. And the day will come when you're first. And he's, he's calling forth images in their heads of the 56 and the 66 chapter of Isaiah. And that's when they realize, oh, I, I have to choose. I have to decide whether I want to be one of these people bringing sacrifices to God's holy mountain or whether I want to count on my earthly lineage to save me and be thrust out. So Jesus, rather than saying, are there few that are saved or many, he puts it right back on them and saying, which one, which group do you want to be in? Do you want to be humble? Do you want your heart to be fat? So when he, when Jesus turns to the disciples and says, I'm, the reason I'm teaching them in parables is to make their heart fat. And he quotes Isaiah. He's saying the people out there, they're still in an Old Testament paradigm. And I'm treating them the way that Isaiah treated the people he preached to. They're people who are counting on their lineage to save them. And here with you, I can treat you in a New Testament paradigm. And I can say to you, here is the truth. Because I believe that you're going to receive it. And I believe you're going to be humble. And when the time comes to come to God's holy mountain, you're going to find yourselves there rather than find yourselves outside. I don't have to say to you that there, I never knew you. I don't, I don't know where you came from. I'm, uh, and there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't have to worry about that with you. 
It's a matter of our choice. God is telling us this over and over again in all of these parables. And by the very fact that he's using parables, that's what he's telling us. Your choice is how much you want to understand. So the point is not, and, and, and I guess here's where I'm going with this entire lesson. God wants us to fail to understand things at first. He wants us to have unanswered questions. What else is the veil but a guarantee that we'll encounter things outside of our experience? Take one moment to imagine all the people who have lived and died without any knowledge of God, and you'll realize it isn't how many answers we know that's important to God. It's what we do with the question that matters to him. Consider what's, what happens when someone in the multitude hears a parable from Christ. She considers it, prays about it, tries to understand it based on scripture, forms an idea about what it might mean, and then tries the idea out. As we learn in Alma chapter 32, she plants the word. Then she finds out, then, the, then it becomes to be delicious to her, and then she understands the parable. She's gone through this process of, and now she knows how to learn from the Holy Spirit. That's what the parable has taught her. Whereas if Jesus arrives with a simple statement, none of those things actually occur. All right, I promised to talk about treasure. There are two treasures about, um, one, a treasure hidden in a field. So a man finds a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like this man who finds a treasure in a field and then he hides it and goes and buys the field. He spends all he's worth. Another man, he's seeking for pearls and he finds one pearl of great price, spends all he has. He sells everything he's got to buy this one pearl of great price. So these two parables share some things and they and they don't share others. In the first case, this man has he knows a secret about the land. He's only paying the price of the land, but he gets the treasure that's in the land for free. And yet, so how much does the treasure cost? Well, nothing. It it but it costs all he has. He has to buy the land and it costs all he has and it's worth every penny because he's getting the treasure with it. Uh, I think the the interpretation of this is fairly obvious. The, the kingdom of heaven is worth everything. And we get so much more than we pay for. We, get, we pay next to nothing compared to what we get back. And it costs everything. So a similar meaning with the, pearl of great, the parable of the pearl of great price. But in this case, it's a man who's seeking pearls. And maybe he's been, this. I mean, when he finds this one pearl of great price, he realizes, this is the one I've been looking for my whole life. Maybe he's a collector of pearls or maybe he's a dealer of pearls. We don't know whether he wants to keep it or whether he wants to take it. And, you know, he recognizes, oh, I've got a buyer for this. I can make a lot of money on this pearl. But in any case, it's the one he's been looking for. And again, he takes, it. Does, how much does it cost? It costs everything. But he considers himself lucky because this is the thing he's been seeking. And so that's that's the idea of hidden treasures. The these two parables especially evoke the language of section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants. When we, when we find these hidden treasures in the scriptures, hidden treasures of knowledge, then the, the promise of the word of wisdom is fulfilled in us. There's one final parable of Jesus, which is one sentence, and it's every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like a man that's a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And I guess we can presume from this, from this parable Jesus is talking about, there are probably a few of these scribes, the, the scribes and the Pharisees that he's called hypocrites. Some of them had to actually, they're around Jesus so much, they had to be converted 
by his preaching. They saw how much he understood the scripture. The scribes were those that he's also called lawyers. They're people who interpret the law, the Torah. And Jesus is saying, every one of these which is instructed into the kingdom, which means becomes a disciple. A disciple is somebody who is a student who learns someone else's teaching. And so that this is specifically talking about these scribes that become instructed into the kingdom means becomes a disciple of Jesus. So that that's a little uh, maybe makes that a little clearer this verse. Matthew 32:50 or sorry, Matthew 13:52. Uh, every scribe which is instructed under the kingdom of heaven is like a man that is a householder which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. This is Jesus giving credence to the idea that he didn't come to help to have anything pass away. The law of Moses has not passed away and the, and the scriptures are not worthless. So these scribes that understand the Hebrew scriptures so well, they're bringing forth, it's not just that they're bringing forth new treasures by their understanding of Jesus's kingdom. They're also bringing forth old treasures from the things they grew up with in their studies in the Torah and their studies in the prophets and their studies in the writings. All of the things they're bringing out of the scriptures are also treasures and they're, and they're necessary. So Jesus is kind of giving them a shout out, it sounds like, that the, and, and telling everyone else, look, we cannot abandon the traditions we were, we were raised with. These things really matter, the scriptures really matter, and I'm not encouraging these ideas to pass away. They're treasures. Final story in Luke chapter 13, which is when Jesus heals a woman and it says she's been bent over 18 years of her life and he lays his hand on her and uh, she, she can in no wise lift up herself. And Jesus called her to him and he said, thou art loose from thy infirmity. He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. They give him the... the the rabbi gives him grief about doing it on the Sabbath day, and Jesus rebukes him. But I just wanted to once again point at Jesus as a healer. Now, I think it's, it's very significant that the man we call prophet is also a healer today. He's such a—and there's, a, there's an article that I read on the website azcentral.com. So it's, a, it's an Arizona story. And it's a, it's a little mini biography about President Nelson and his history as a surgeon. It talks about how he was one of the, one of the innovators in the original heart-lung machine. And if you can think about how brilliant that machine is, uh, the, the heart pumps so much blood, a huge volume of blood to the lungs every second, and then receives that oxygenated blood back and pumps it to the body. And there's really no way that surgeons could intervene catastrophically in your body without, by just uh, interrupting one of those organs. They had to do both. And so there was a team that was trying to invent and uh, perfect a piece of equipment that would replace both the heart and lungs during a surgery. And, and President Nelson was on that original team. So this is the caliber of surgeon he is. This is the caliber of healer he is. And hundreds, if not thousands of times, he's had his hands literally on people's hearts, healing them. And uh, what, what President Nelson says, in essence, in this article, I recommend it to you, in azcentral.com, is the healing that I could do for anyone. And, and we know that President Nelson loves his patients. We, we, we've seen, um, if, you've, if you've heard that talk that he gave about two patients that he lost and how much 
that affected him and almost made him give up medicine because he cared so much about the people that he healed and those people that he tried to heal and couldn't. He loves his patients, but he said, the healing that I can offer people is nothing compared to what the Savior can offer. So Jesus was the ultimate healer. And of course, the physical healing that he gave was, was miraculous and amazing. And it was, so, it was so widespread and it was instantaneous. And, and it, only, it only magnifies how amazing it is, the healing that he gives us spiritually the healing that he brings to our souls. So that takes us right back to the final point I wanted to make. Uh, and that's, we're going to return back where we began with the parable of the wheat and the tares. So the Jesus gives the interpretation of this parable. And he says, the, the wheat are the good people, the tares are the evil people, the the harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. The enemy is the devil. And in the final day, in the final judgment, you know, the people will be cast into hell. There'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. We talked about that. The There's one set of characters that doesn't get any treatment in the interpretation. And if you pay attention, you'll spot it. And that is the servants. So in the original parable, the servants come to the master and say, hey, can we separate the wheat and the tares? And the master says to him, no, no, it's not yet time. If you try to, and, the, and, and pay attention to what the master doesn't say. He says, if you try to pull up the tares right now, you'll pull up the wheat. So he doesn't, he's not worried about not getting all of the tares. He's not worried about them getting, doing an incomplete job. He doesn't say, I don't want you to go try to pull up the tares because you guys are going to, you guys are going to err on the side of thinking everything is wheat. And so you're not going to pull up enough tares. What he says is you're going to pull up too many tares. You're going to assume things are tares that are actually wheat. And when you do, then the my good plants, the plants that I've worked so hard to, to put into the ground are going to be uprooted. So one more thing about Darnell weed. It's actually a poisonous, if, if this is the plant that the Savior was talking about, it looks exactly like wheat, except it's poisonous. It's a poisonous weed. It's a, the, the seeds, it's an intoxicating herb, but it also can lead to death. Uh, in French, the word for, for Darnell weed is ivraille, which is, uh, comes from Latin, ibriacus, which is the root of our word, inebriated. It causes you to get drunk, nauseous, and eventually die. So was it right for these servants to be concerned that tares might end up in the wheat. Yes, if, if tares are used to make flour, then the, all of the flour will be poisoned. So they're concerned about the tares among the wheat, rightfully so. But the master lets them know that this consideration, as important as it is, is secondary. The wheat is precious to him. And he limits the task of the servants to ensuring the health of the wheat and to that alone. He has reapers and, and he... As we discuss, these are the angels. He has reapers to separate the wheat from the tares. Now, I mentioned the servants aren't discussed in the interpretation of the parable. That's because the servants and the wheat have the same symbolic meaning. Let that sink in for a minute. Of course, the wheat are his servants. That's the whole point of being wheat. The, the wheat is the servants of the master. 
So what we learn in this parable, indeed the whole point of the parable, is that the servants are never going to be able to tell wheat from tares. The reapers will handle that when the time comes. The servant's job is to cultivate wheat. They can't be trusted to determine when something that looks like wheat is actually a tear. This is why it's so important that we don't judge each other. But Jesus' message goes beyond that. If we can't tell when someone else is a tear, we are similarly unqualified to make that judgment about ourselves. And the wheat we are called on to cultivate includes that plant growing from our own stock. It is simply too early in the growing season for us to know who is a wheat stock and who is a tear. We are therefore called not only to see wheat among the tares, but to see wheat in the tares. We are not predetermined to be tares the way plants are predetermined by the nature of their seed. We get to choose up into the very moment what kind of plant we're going to be. And we are not qualified to rule ourselves out of the kingdom of God as a tear when we are wheat. If we choose, as it says in John chapter 1, then we will be born of God. We will be of the seed and lineage of God, not merely of the seed of Abraham. We are not called upon to be tares, and we are not called upon to see ourselves as tares. Jesus has told us we're unqualified to make that distinction. The thing we are called on to do is to grow ourselves as wheat. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.